For all my shows, I like to reference a wide variety of sources. Today, I'm going to be pulling a lot from one particular source, titled The Baseball Codes, The Unwritten Rules of America's Pastime, written by Jason Turbo and Michael Duca. And why I'm drawing a lot from this one source has to do with the nature of the content, based on years of major league players, coaches, and managers keeping secrets. And just one more distraction. It's really helpful to help spread the show to get reviews. So if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the episodes. Okay, here's the episode. The Fight Nolan Ryan Robin Ventura With these six words, most of you already know exactly what I'm talking about, and people are still writing and talking about it 30 years later. I'm talking about it. And if you go online and do a quick search, you'll find articles from the 2000s, 2013, 2014, 15, 18, articles from six months ago, dozens of articles. Why has this 20-second fight in a baseball game become immortalized? First, let's get a brief refresher on the moment in question. On August 4, 1993, in the third inning of a game between the Chicago White Sox and Texas Rangers, 46-year-old Texas Ranger Nolan Ryan hit 26-year-old Robin Ventura in the shoulder. Ventura took a few tentative steps towards first base, then he turned and charged the mound. Before Ventura could make a move, Nolan Ryan stepped forward and wrapped Ventura in a headlock with one arm while he connected short uppercuts with the other, having his way with the man 20 years his junior until both benches emptied and a legitimate brawl ensued. From Rob Goldman, author of Nolan Ryan, The Making of a Pitcher, quote, both benches emptied and the main combatants disappeared under the surge of humanity. Ventura eventually emerged unscathed, but Ryan remained trapped beneath the pile and was nearly unconscious when help came from an unexpected quarter. All I remember is that I couldn't breathe, said Ryan. I thought I was going to black out and die, when all of a sudden I see two big arms tossing bodies off me. It was Chicago's Bo Jackson. He had come to my rescue, and I'm awfully glad he did, because I was about to pass out. I called him that night and thanked him. End quote. One might explain the popularity of this brawl by saying, everyone loves a good fight. And in this fight, there were some particularly nasty injuries. Rangers coach Mickey Hatcher came out of the melee with a bleeding gash above his eye. But there are dozens of fights each year, some even nastier, and most are quickly forgotten. According to Goldman, the fight between Ryan and Ventura has, quote, come to symbolize his Texas toughness, and it made Ryan a symbol of middle-aged defiance. End quote. To put it another way, this was a classic David versus Goliath matchup. Old versus young. Outdated versus new. Strong versus weak. Nolan Ryan, at 46, had broken nearly every pitching record there was, 
But 1993 was his final season, and here, in this moment, he's simply defending himself from the young, strong aggressor. And he was seen to be in the right, as both Robin Ventura and White Sox manager Gene Lamont were ejected from the game. Nolan Ryan was not ejected. Nolan Ryan continued pitching and won the game, which only added to the folklore. Six-time All-Star and World Series champion Paul Konerko, who attended the game as a 17-year-old, said, quote, I remember for every inning after that, the whole place was chanting, Nolan, Nolan, for what seemed like an hour long. It was an electric type of atmosphere after that happened, end quote. People love a Hollywood moment and a Hollywood ending, and here they had both. And this was in Texas, site of the Alamo, where the mythical American hero, Davy Crockett, according to legend, stood on a mound of dirt and fought back the enemy until his dying breath. In this modern mythic tale, Nolan Ryan is the aging hero, Robin Ventura the young, cocky upstart who's taught a hard but valuable lesson. If you scripted this, it couldn't have gone better. Except, like the legend of Davy Crockett, it's not true. What you see when watching this video of Nolan Ryan and Robin Ventura is not actually what's happening. David is not David, and Goliath is not Goliath. The truth has to do with something called the Code, a set of unwritten rules that have governed Major League Baseball from the very beginning. And if you understand the Code, and how it was functioning on this day, the video becomes even more fascinating to watch and rewatch, and rewatch, and rewatch, and rewatch. You're listening to the Midnight Library of Baseball, where there are no loud noises, no jarring music, only nostalgic, thought-provoking, emotional stories about baseball. I'm Ben Orlando. On the surface, baseball appears to be one thing, governed by obvious and understandable rules. But under the surface, it is something else entirely. And this subterranean world is governed by the code. According to Jason Turbo, who wrote an excellent book titled The Baseball Codes, The Unwritten Rules of America's Pastime, quote, less strategic than moral, these rules collectively drive the game, forming not just a code, but the code, the ultimate measure used to shape ballplayers' attitudes toward themselves, each other, and the game they play, end quote. Former player and World Series manager, Bob Brenly put it simply when he said, quote, respect your teammates, respect your opponents, and respect the game, end quote. But it's not that simple. If you were to write down these unwritten rules, you'd have a book as thick as the Bible, with fine print constantly crossed out and rewritten, 
because the code changes over time. And the problem on August 4th, 1993, was that different players had different understandings of what the code meant. And Nolan Ryan, who was seven years older than his manager in 1993, had come up in the game when the code was very different. Ryan's rookie season was 1966. 1966. Yogi Berra had retired the previous year. Ted Williams had retired a few years earlier. And Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays still had seasons left to play. According to Jason Turbo, the code for pitchers of Nolan Ryan's generation went like this. Quote, if you dig in, you'll be brushed back or hit. If you hit a home run, you'll be brushed back or hit. If you watch your home run, you'll be brushed back or hit. End quote. White Sox pitcher Jack McDowell said that Ryan was, quote, the last guy standing from that headhunting era, end quote. To this day, in 2024, retaliation is still part of the code. But just how much, nobody can agree. The term retaliation in baseball is fairly straightforward in theory and connects back to Nolan Ryan's code. If you do something that gives you an advantage or shows disrespect, I'm going to retaliate to either put you in your place or move the advantage back to my side. And retaliation can mean a whole slew of things, including hitting the batter. In 2017, journalist Buster Olney said retaliation was, quote, left over like a horse and buggy in the middle of an interstate highway, end quote. In 2003, Pedro Martinez plunked Derek Jeter and Alfonso Soriano, sending both players to the hospital. In 2006, Travis Hafner was having a Hall of Fame season when Rangers pitcher C.J. Wilson beamed Hafner, breaking his hand and ending his season. Not to say that any or all of these pitches were intentional, but it goes to show the dangers of using a pitch as a deterrent. As journalist Adam Felder argued in a piece for The Atlantic, quote, throwing a baseball at 90 miles per hour or more at another human being qualifies as assault with a deadly weapon. It's only between the foul lines that a violent felony is instead viewed as enforcing the game's unwritten rules, end quote. But even with these current debates and violent examples, the game was still evolving toward less retaliation for several key reasons. Jason Turbo explained that, quote, umpires began to work with the assumption that most pitchers who hit batters did so intentionally, and as a result, many batters followed suit. Second, as salaries skyrocketed, newly minted millionaires became more protective of their ability to maintain earning power and took increasingly more offense when pitchers came inside with potentially career-threatening fastballs, end quote. So players wanted to protect their careers and incomes, and managers and owners wanted to protect their investments. For examples of not only the career-ending but life-ending threat, we can look to Ray Chapman, who I discussed in episode two. Chapman died from a beanball to the head. For another example, we can look to one of the main characters in our mythical story. 
In 1974, Nolan Ryan, 19 years before the Robin Ventura incident, was trying to intimidate Doug Griffin when he threw a pitch high and inside and beamed Griffin behind the ear, knocking Griffin unconscious and sending the Red Sox hitter to the hospital. According to Turbo, quote, it's likely the injuries, which necessitated two full months of recovery, led to the premature end of his career three years later at age 30, end quote. And for a while, Nolan Ryan, the tough-as-nails, in-your-face strikeout king, could not pitch. He said of the incident, quote, That's the first time the thought crossed my mind that I was capable of possibly killing somebody. End quote. But after some time, Ryan regrouped and came back to the code, saying, quote, Baseball is business, and you have to do what's necessary to win. End quote. Brushing players back and hitting players was part of Ryan's dominance on the mound, and as long as it was allowed, he would continue to do it. So when we come back to what happened on August 4th, 1993, with Nolan Ryan and Robin Ventura, and we factor in the code, we actually have to go back three years to 1990 in order to get to the truth. As author Rob Goldman explained it, In spring training of 1990, White Sox Craig Graybeck hit a home run off his first pitch against the Rangers. And he pumped his fists after doing so, which is another code violation. You don't showboat and make the other team look bad. Nolan Ryan, watching from the bench, turned to pitching coach Tom House and said, I'm going to put some age on that little squirt. He's swinging like he isn't afraid of me. End quote. And the next time Ryan faced Graybeck, he hit him square in the back. Graybeck didn't get a hit off Ryan the rest of the season. In his book, Goldman went on to effectively break down the sequence that led to Nolan Ryan hitting Robin Ventura in 1993. Quote, August 17, 1990. Ryan hit Graybeck again in his first at-bat on the first pitch. Three innings later, the Sox retaliated by hitting Rangers third baseman Steve Buscelli. September 6, 1991, Ryan hit Ventura in the back at Arlington. August 2, 1993, two days before the Ventura fight, Roger Pavlik of the Rangers hit Ron Karkaviche. Chicago retaliated by hitting Dean Palmer twice and Mario Diaz once. End quote. In support of the idea of retaliation, columnist Marissa Scolamiero argued, quote, let the boys be boys and deal with the issues on the field instead of letting things fester, end quote. But clearly, here, with the White Sox and Rangers, dealing with things on the field was leading to more and more resentment, three years of buildup and escalation. And as the gasoline-soaked kindling piled higher and higher, Robin Ventura, his first time up that day on August 4th, 1993, hit a single off Nolan Ryan, meaning he'd likely be a target the next time up. And the White Sox were sick and tired of this trend. From Jason Turbo, quote, In their clubhouse, the Chicago players discussed their collective beef with Ryan 
and came to the conclusion that they'd taken enough abuse. End quote. From White Sox pitcher Roger McDowell, quote, the whole world stops when that guy pitches, like he's God or something. He's been throwing at batters forever, and people are too gutless to do anything. End quote. On this day, the White Sox decided that the only way to change anything was by fighting back, by storming the mound. And caught in the middle was 26-year-old Robin Ventura, who, according to Frank Thomas, quote, really didn't want to charge him. He wasn't angry. He was just saying, you can't be doing that for no reason. He really wholeheartedly didn't want to do it, end quote. And Roger McDowell backed up Thomas's sentiment when he said about Ventura, quote, that was the problem. When he went out there, he didn't know what to do because he wasn't mad, end quote. Robin Ventura, a.k.a. Goliath, absolutely did not want to fight. He did not want to charge the mound. So now, when you go back and watch this video clip, Think about the reality of the situation. Nolan Ryan, stuck in his ways, even after severely injuring a man, continued to throw at hitters or brush them back as a way to even the score or gain an edge. And this young man, Robin Ventura, who wasn't hostile, who wasn't holding a grudge, was just being a team player. Because that's another element of the code. Loyalty. From Turbo, quote, you must be loyal to your teammates, even though you may hate every last one of them. End quote. Robin Ventura was loyal. The team had made a decision, and Ventura was the unfortunate man who drew the short straw. Perhaps, as Ventura was hit and began walking to first, he thought, well, maybe I don't have to. Maybe I can let it go. But then the code kicked in and he knew he had to do it, and so he slowly, hesitantly charged the mound, really not wanting to fight, which of course gave Nolan Ryan the edge. After it happened, Ventura could have told the press the truth, the backstory, and his role in the entire affair, but Ventura continued to follow the code, and rule number one of the code is simple. Don't talk about the code. Whatever happens on the field or in the clubhouse, we take care of it. It's a family affair. Robin Ventura shrugged off the fight. He quietly absorbed or deflected the mocking responses from the fans and media, and he went about his business. But everyone inside baseball knew what had really happened. In the end, there was no bad blood between Ryan and Ventura. Years later, Ryan recounted, quote, I remember when he got the White Sox managerial job, and the first game he managed was in Arlington. I congratulated him 30 minutes before the game and told him, Robin, I'm really sorry this thing took on a life of its own. I don't have any animosity, and he didn't either. End quote. Notice what Nolan Ryan said. Not, I'm sorry for hitting you in the shoulder. Not, I'm sorry you felt you had to rush the mound. Not, I'm sorry I punched you in the face multiple times. No. What he said was, I'm really sorry this thing took on a life of its own. 
Ryan was not sorry for what happened in the game, because for him, it was just part of the code. And Robin Ventura, although he would have preferred not to have rushed the mound, also accepted the rules of the code, as he and his teammates saw it. From a rational perspective, brushing back or hitting a batter makes perfect sense to instill fear and gain an edge. If the batter is afraid, he's going to stand back from the plate, thereby opening up the outside part of the plate for the pitcher and making it that much easier for the pitcher to control the at-bat. Applying the code to showboating or celebration, however, speaks more of a Victorian age with shirts buttoned up to your chin and emotions pushed far, far down. It speaks of a time in our history, a hundred years ago, of black and white photographs where you are absolutely not allowed to smile. What Craig Graybeck did to start this whole three-year feud was not showboat. He simply pumped his fists. He expressed excitement at hitting a home run, and in so doing, he broke the rules of the code. Consider, one of the hardest things in sports is to hit a baseball. It would naturally follow that, at the highest level of baseball, when you not only hit a baseball, but hit a home run, you would feel good, happy, ecstatic even. But you are told, or taught by object lesson, to push down those feelings and round the bases like a robot. Why? According to journalist Manny Robinson, quote, it is not the responsibility of the triumphant to placate the anguish of the defeated. Bat flips are not endangering the game. Nothing is harmed when a runner trespasses across the mound, except the pitcher's feelings, end quote. There's no better example of a pitcher with hurt feelings holding a grudge than Bob Gibson in 1975. Known as one of the most effective and intimidating pitchers in Major League history, Gibson subscribed to the same set of rules as Nolan Ryan. In 1975, Pete Laycock hit a grand slam off Gibson. So naturally, Gibson was all set to knock down Laycock the next time he faced him. Except, he didn't face him again that game, and then Gibson retired. Fifteen years later, in an old-timers game, Gibson got his revenge. According to Laycock, quote, Bob Feller was throwing when I came up to the plate. All of a sudden, Gibson comes running out of the dugout. He sends Feller back to the bench and starts warming up, and I think, he's not really going to hit me. Sure enough, first pitch, whammo. End quote. The code in this case is really a microcosm for what happens to many of us growing up. Many listeners may relate to the batter scolded for having his positive feelings, as if he's doing something wrong by feeling happy, excited, and proud of himself. The truth is, he's forced to protect the pitcher from his feelings, just like many of us feel like we have to protect others from our feelings. And so we walk around, feeling in our bones that it's against the law to feel happy or excited or proud. But it's really not. When a batter hits a home run and slips up and, oops, leaks their excitement and pride onto the field, a cycle of anger and violence ensues, as seen in the Ryan Ventura episode. 
And while the excitement is not accepted, the violence and the anger are. To recap, for more than a hundred years, happiness, excitement, and feeling good about oneself have been pushed down, while anger, bitterness, revenge, and violence have been promoted, all as a part of the code. But not everyone has always subscribed to the code. From ESPN's June Lee, quote, Carlos Gomez, who was never afraid to show his emotions on the field, said he was used to opponents misinterpreting his joyful exuberance as disrespect. He was often the target of retaliatory hit-by-pitches or harsh criticism from opposing fans. I just express myself when I'm playing baseball, Gomez said. I'm never thinking, I'm going to do this, I'm going to make a bat flip, I'm going to slide and point to the dugout. No, no, no. I just let the moment flow, and sometimes I get pointed to like I'm the bad guy because I do stuff like that, end quote. But it takes a lot to play the game like Carlos Gomez when the entire culture is pressuring you to push everything down. But again, this is just one aspect of the code. If we open another chapter, we find a kind and friendly, if a bit unfair, side of the code when it comes to record-breaking. Personally, I've often wondered about this, and in their book, Jason Turbo and Michael Duca answered at least some of my questions. Turbo began the section on record-breaking in 1968 in a game where Denny McLean faced Mickey Mantle. McLean would go on to win 31 games that season. The last time someone won more than 31 games was 1916, when Grover Cleveland Alexander won 33 and the closest anyone has come since was Bob Welch with 27 wins in 1990. But on this day in 1968, McLean was thinking about a different record. It was Mickey Mantle's final season, and coming into this game, he was tied with Jimmy Fox with 534 all-time home runs. If he passed Fox, Mantle would be third all-time behind Willie Mays, and Babe Ruth. And it just so happened that Denny McLean had loved Mickey Mantle when he was a boy. This adoration, combined with the respect for a player who could accomplish so much, led to McLean telling his catcher, Jim Price, quote, let him hit one, end quote. Price seemed to have no problem with this. And when he told Mickey Mantle, Mantle seemed to have no problem. Part of the code said, if you pay your dues, we might help you out just a little from time to time. From Jason Turbo, quote, Mantle stepped into the batter's box, at which point the Yankee star extended his bat over the plate to indicate just the spot in which he'd like to see the pitch. McLean delivered, and Mantle connected for a homer, end quote. And as the Mick rounded the bases, Denny McLean smiled and clapped for his idol and everyone accepted what had happened as part of the code. In the final game of the 1959 season, Yankees second baseman Bobby Richardson needed one hit to push his average above 300. But if he got a hit and then continued to bat, he might go 0 for 1, 0 for 2, 0 for 3 for the rest of the game, which would sink his average back down under 300. So Yankees manager Casey Stengel 
told Richardson that if he got a hit, Stengel would pull him from the game to preserve his average, and the other team was complicit. According to Turbo, quote, the Baltimore Orioles took up the cause. Brooks Robinson informed Richardson that he'd be playing deep in case the hitter found appeal in bunting. Pitcher Billy O'Dell offered to groove pitches, and catcher Joe Ginsburg verbally called pitches instead of dropping down signs. Umpire Ed Hurley even got in on the act, offering that if Richardson could just make it close, things would go his way. Said Richardson, there couldn't have been a more complete fix on. End quote. Richardson got a hit his first time up and then refused to leave the game per his manager's urgings. He went two for three and ended the season with a 301 average. In one comical example, Cincinnati Reds pitcher Mario Soto was one out away from a no-hitter in 1984 when Cardinals outfielder George Hendrick stepped up to the plate, all set to give Soto his no-hitter. Hendrick watched strike one fly by, then strike two. He was ready to watch strike three when out of nowhere, Soto threw his third pitch high and inside, nearly connecting with Hendrick's chin. From Turbo, quote, the slugger got up, slowly returned to the box, and knocked Soto's next offering over the fence in left field. I don't know why he did that, Hendrick said afterward. I was going to let the man have his no-hitter, end quote. There's another odd aspect of the code when it comes to consistency. In a sense, the culture of baseball does not like unpredictability. But it also makes sense from a fielder's perspective, as you want to know what to expect when a 200-pound freight train is barreling toward you. Take the case of Bill Buckner, the main character of episode 10 of this podcast. During a game against the Pirates, Buckner slid hard into second baseman Phil Gardner to break up a double play. And according to Gardner, quote, damn near broke my legs, end quote. But the ferocity of Buckner's slide wasn't the problem. The problem was that the hard slide was not expected from Buckner. From Gardner, quote, this some bitch slides 30 feet short for 160 games, and now, in the 161st, he's going to slide hard? Fuck that. Play the game hard in game one, just like you did that day, end quote. And there were players in the game much more ferocious than Buckner. Don Baylor, who played at the same time, was considered the most feared base runner in the game. According to writer Bruce Markison, Baylor, quote, drew admiration for his tendency to apply ferocious takeout slides at second base. On one play, Baylor ran over Indian second baseman Angel Hermoso, knocking him out for three months because of a knee injury. End quote. But Phil Gardner and other players didn't have a problem with Don Baylor, because with Baylor, you knew what you were getting. So when Bill Buckner, on his 161st slide, went in hard, the code was about to bite him hard. The next time Bill Buckner slid into second to break up a double play, Phil Gardner cocked his arm to throw to first, but directed the throw at Buckner's head instead. Buckner shot his hand up to block the ball and broke a finger in the process. The rules of the code had been satisfied. 
A similar scenario occurred in 2004 with Toronto Blue Jays' Carlos Delgado, who slid hard into Doug Minkowitz, who was normally a first baseman without much experience at second. After Delgado took down Minkowitz, a brief fight broke out between the two. And just like was the case with Bill Buckner, Minkowitz was angry not because Delgado slid in hard, but because this wasn't Delgado's M.O. Payback came for Delgado's code violation, rapid and persistent. According to Turbo, quote, Red Sox pitcher Derek Lowe drilled the Toronto superstar during his next at-bat, and Delgado was forced to avoid several other pitches during the course of the three-game series, end quote. And in the midst of this focused payback, Red Sox pitcher Kurt Schilling tried to hit Delgado and missed, and then apologized to Mankiewicz for missing. Another behind-the-scenes example of the code is what happens on the base paths, particularly at first base. Remember, the code is not only about respect and not showing up the other team. It's also about gaining an edge. There's no better example than first base. According to journalist Cody Stavenhagen, quote, first base is a place where generations merge, friendships develop, and rivalries unfold. It can be a place for joking or catching up or maybe just locking in on the game. To find the essence of baseball and its humanity, there's no better place to look than first base, end quote. And while you're mingling and bonding, you also might get your head knocked off. Every time a base runner takes the leadoff first and then dives back to the bag, the first baseman has an opportunity to enforce their reign by tagging the runner as hard as they can. And runners accept the abuse as part of the code. From Dusty Baker, quote, Willie Stargell would slap you so nicely, he'd smile, then drop that hammer on your head, on your ribs. It makes you shorten your lead. Oh boy, that would hurt. Pops would slap you silly over there, and what could you do? End quote. And from Dave Roberts, quote, Randall Simon and Carlos Delgado just beat you up. That's just what they do. It's why I try not to stay at first base for too long. End quote. According to Jason Turbo, quote, Willie McCovey delivered among the hardest blows in the business, inspiring Lou Brock to claim that leading off against the Giants was the worst experience one could have. These fielders are all protected by the code which says it's just the price runners pay for doing business, end quote. There are endless examples of the code, from not running up the score, to proper etiquette on the mound, at home plate, and off the field, to more varied examples of intimidation and gamesmanship, to superstition, like never talk about a no-hitter in progress. The list goes on, but there's also the reality that much of the code is slipping away. But what should go and what should stay? As I've already noted, many people argue for more consequences for pitchers targeting hitters as a means of retaliation. As journalist Adam Felder wrote, quote, when pitchers hit batters, it's assault. Why does MLB condone it in baseball? End quote. And this makes sense. Rushing the batter back is one thing but hitting him is something else altogether. And as the new generation enters the game and players become bigger investments, 
this practice will continue to decrease. One of the most contentious unwritten rules across baseball today has to do with running up the score in late innings. For one thing, there's no clear agreement on just how big a lead and how late in the game constitutes a code violation. In 2020, Fernando Tatis Jr. of the San Diego Padres hit a grand slam. The problem was that his Padres were up 10-3 in the eighth inning, and Tatis swung at a 3-0 pitch, which is usually a clear code violation. And many players were angry. At the same time, others said, good job. Tampa Bay pitcher Colin Pocha said, quote, if you don't like giving up 3-0 grand slams, pitch better, end quote. And Hall of Fame catcher Johnny Bench remarked, quote, everyone should hit 3-0. Grand slams are a huge stat, end quote. You also never know when a team could mount a rally and come back, which happens. Many major league players and managers want to play the game hard until the very last out, no matter how much you're up by but they run against the code, which says, respect the other team, don't show them up. Rangers manager Chris Woodward was criticized for finding another angle that butted heads with the code. Woodward used a strategy to wear down the opposing team's bullpen, even if his Rangers had a sizable lead. It's not just about this game, was Woodward's point, but the whole series. And if the intention is to win, then let's try to win. If we're up 8-0 to zero and can wear down your bullpen so you're weaker in tomorrow's game, why wouldn't we do that? The origins of the code tie back to a time and place much different from today. In the era of Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth and John McGraw, the animosity between teams and players was palpable. You didn't make a lot of money, and you scrapped and clawed for what you made. Without the code, however draconian it may seem today, things would have escalated out of control. Also, for much of early baseball, players did not switch teams very often, leading to much deeper bonds and loyalties. The whole, what happens on our team stays with our team, makes much more sense when players are staying together for four, five, six years at a time. Today, in the modern era, civility comes from another direction. According to Jason Turbo, quote, modern trends have made pitchers and hitters allies in many important respects. Many share an agent. They play golf together. When the baseline for opposing players was enmity at best, the code was vital. Now that they glad-hand each other around the batting cage and catch up in winter over Caribbean vacations, it becomes far less prevalent, end quote. Also, as Turbo explained, the game has become far more individualistic, with players frequently jumping from one team to the next. This leads to less loyalty and less of an adherence to certain parts of the code. The reality is that, even as the code continues to evolve and certain aspects fade away, there will always be a second or third layer of truth behind the curtain. Underneath the game of checkers, a game of chess is being played across two or three different boards. 
which ultimately makes this already unique special game that much more fascinating. And for one final example of this story within a story, within just a few seconds of play, there's the incident of Albert Bell and Fernando Vigna on May 31st, 1996. Just like the incident with Nolan Ryan and Robin Ventura, you can easily find a clip online where Albert Bell, running from first to second, pancakes second baseman Fernando Villa, as in, absolutely demolishes him. On one level, just watching the play, you might think, wow, that's excessive. But according to the code and general baseball rules, Bell did nothing wrong. Vigna was standing directly in Bell's way, and really, all Bell did was continue to run, albeit with a clear elbow to Vigna's chest slash head. And umpires agreed. There was no foul, no violation called on the field. However, a bit later, American League President Gene Budig suspended Bell for five games for the play. When we look at the play on one level, Vigna is simply in the way, and so Bell simply ran through him to break up the double play. On a second level, according to journalist Tommy Wilde, quote, Bell said he warned Vigna about blocking the base path earlier in the game. When almost the exact same play happened, Vigna didn't listen to the warning, which caused Bell to take exception, and that's how we got the infamous clip that's still replayed today. End quote. And if we dig a bit deeper, there's still another level to the story, reported in the Washington Post. As Wilde stated, there was a similar play that happened earlier in the game, when Vigna fielded a ball and blocked Bell's path. But when this happened the first time, Bell didn't do much to break up the play, and his inaction incurred the wrath of the Indians' first base coach, Dave Nelson, who confronted Bell after the first incident and scolded him. Nelson said, quote, Damn it, Albert, what did I tell you? You cost us a run, and you should have took the guy out. End quote. Albert Bell had gotten the message loud and clear from his coach. The next time this happens, take him out. So what on the surface looks like a brutish, hothead move on Bell's part was actually just a player following orders from his coach. This is baseball. And if you watch closely enough, you might just find yourself inside the game, which is a very fascinating place to be. That's the end of the show. And I highly recommend to anyone who enjoyed this show and this content to check out The Baseball Codes, The Unwritten Rules of America's Pastime, written by Jason Turbo and Michael Duca. If you like the show, please leave a review at iTunes or wherever you listen. And I've really been appreciating the comments coming in. And again, you can leave comments uh, through the website or by sending me an email at uh, midnightlibraryofbaseball at gmail.com. You can find the podcast at my website, midnightlibraryofbaseball.com. And you can subscribe on iTunes. Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and a variety of other platforms. You can also find me on Instagram, Midnight Library of Baseball, and on Facebook. 
The music is A Long Way by Sergi Pabkin at Pixabay. Good night.